Welcome to Man Up, a podcast by men, about men, and for men who want to be better fathers, husbands, leaders, and followers of Jesus. Today's topic, imitating Christ. Are you ready? Man Up. Yes, sir! Welcome, welcome, my friends. I'm your host, Jared Bowman, and this is Man Up, your podcast with all the encouragement that you need to be a better father, husband, leader, and follower of Jesus. We're a band of brothers. We're soldiers in arms and we're comrades. We fight side by side, shoulder to shoulder, hand over hand, mile after mile, until each has helped the other attain the high calling of Jesus. And it is the high calling of Jesus that we're going to be talking about today. We're joined by friend of show, friend in real life, neighbor, contributor, and the guy that's really bailing me out this week because I wasn't able to sync up with some guests that I had scheduled before him. Brian Haynes is here again. And today we're going to talk about becoming like Jesus, and we're going to focus on the Beatitudes. And Brian, glad that you could be here. Tell us a little bit about what's going on and talk to us a little bit about the Beatitudes and how we can apply them to our daily life. Fantastic to be here as always, Jared, and uh, you're really excited to talk about these things. Typically, when I pull out the Beatitudes, I'll usually jump over to, as opposed to Luke, I'll jump into Matthew chapter 5, uh, the Sermon on the Mount. You know, some people have compared the Sermon on the Mount to the Ten Commandments as far as its place in the law of Christ. So in other words, as the Ten Commandments were the law of Moses, perhaps the Sermon on the Mount is to the law of Christ. That's an interesting idea, and it's one I think about a lot, and I can see why somebody might think that. And what is interesting then is that the Beatitudes represent the preamble of that idea. It's the, yep. it's the statement that really uh, tells us the most important things about, I guess you could say this, in some ways it tells us the most important things about the law of Christ. So that really is something to consider. And it's also a lot of juxtaposition and paradox too. That's what's really neat about it. It's, it's saying, mm -hmm. Hey, all these things that you've always thought were bad, they're actually fantastic. Meaning the opportunities or the things that they present for you that are oftentimes seen as, as undesirable are in fact, making you a very fortunate, blessed, happy person. So it really is an interesting thing. Yeah, and that's one of the things that I love about it. And I've I've heard that parallel between the Beatitudes and and the or the Sermon on the Mount rather and the giving of the law, specifically the Ten Commandments. I like to look at James as a commentary on the Sermon on the Mount. And I mean, not really the purpose of it, but it is kind of an exposition on the Sermon on the Mount. And if you go through James, you can find almost every one of the Beatitudes mentioned in a very practical way about how a man should conduct himself. You think about chapter four, let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom, you know, blessed are those who mourn. And you have this, you have the controlling of the tongue and you've got blessed are the meek. You've got hungering and thirsting for righteousness and the instruction to seek the wisdom that's from above. And there's lots of parallels in books like James or in the book of James rather between the Beatitudes and really the whole Sermon on the Mount and sort of this exposition of how do we live this in a practical way. And it, you And I'm glad that you brought that up. I'm glad that you started with calling our attention to Matthew chapter 5, which uh, to me is probably the best rendering of the Beatitudes in any of the Gospels. But they are front and center to the Sermon on the Mount. And Jesus is talking about who will inherit the kingdom. So let's cut to the chase here. 
what's the takeaway from this passage for a modern reader? I, I want to really look at this from the, from the standpoint of being a husband, of being a father, of being a man of God, pursuing that image of Jesus. How does saying this kingdom inheritance, and we're going to go into the blessings a little bit later, but this kingdom inheritance is ours to pursue. What kind of challenge is that laying in front of us? How does that change our focus as men, as husbands, as fathers? And what's he trying to call our attention to? Well, let's start off by saying that one important idea here is that in order to obtain the things that we want, let's say what we want is success as a husband, as a father, as a man in general, that we're not going to be pursuing that in a manner that the world lays out for us. So in other words, the world lays out success in terms of money and numbers and, you know, the honor of men and fame, whatever you might want to say that. Now, Jesus is going to say success as a man isn't about pursuing worldly ideas. It's pursuing characteristics that the world itself finds foolishness. One of the things that always jumps out at me about the Beatitudes is how much they fit Paul's statement in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, that the wisdom of God is foolishness to the world. And that's that's absolutely found here in this sense. You know, these Beatitudes are bookended by two statements that deal with specifically the kingdom of heaven. I mean, the, the in-between blessings, I think, are all pointing that way. But the first is, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And blessed are those who have been persecuted, verse 10, for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. When you look at these things, does it change how we view the kingdom of heaven and how we pursue it? I mean, typically when we think of pursuing the kingdom of heaven, our minds go toward hear, believe, repent, confess, and be baptized. What, from a practical standpoint, what is Jesus telling us here about the makeup of the kingdom of heaven? How does it apply to maybe the other parables that tell us about the kingdom of heaven? I'm thinking Matthew 13, you've got that, you've got that series of parables, some of them long, two of them long, some of them short, about the kingdom of heaven is this. You know, it's like the sower, it's like the wheat and the tares, it's like the mustard seed, the dragnet, it's like the pearl and the treasure that's lost in the field. What is he telling us about the kingdom and our pursuit of the kingdom in, in this list of Beatitudes? Well, it is very different than a lot of the other things we think of when we think of this. And, and of course, you know, the importance of, you know, this, the specificity of obedience can't be overlooked, but he really is talking about inward perspection here. That's what's so neat about where he's going with this. He isn't talking about the idea of a, of a list of things you're checking off in order to to inherit, to be successful and before God, to, you know, to be, to be the one that's pleasing to God. He is saying that fundamentally the kingdom of heaven is designed for an introspective person, a person who looks within themselves and sees characteristics that, again, that aren't characteristics that the world says are successful. They're realistic. And I think that sometimes in, in looking at this list, it really is remarkable that it's things like, and this isn't on the list, but to think of it like this, he's saying, you've got to be the kind of person that acknowledges you're weak. You've got to be the kind mm -hmm. of person that acknowledges you're not, you're not enough. I mean, these are, you know, these are, these are the fundamental characteristics of the kingdom. Only people that know that they're not good enough for the kingdom can get to the kingdom. I mean, it's a paradox. It's a beautiful paradox. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's what's so interesting to me that jumps out here first is that the, 
the things that he's saying are tie us to the kingdom of heaven aren't things that were steps that we're taking. It's ways that we perceive ourselves and ex and and being realistic in those circumstances. I, I like that. I, I mean, they are inward focused. And and I'll be the first one to acknowledge that the sort of the the evidence that we have that inward focus is external. I mean, it's hard to be a peacemaker. It's hard to be the meek. It's hard to be those who who are hungering and thirsting for righteousness without having some outward evidence of that. But it's not the outward action alone. It's the change to the inner person. And again, these are not these are not the kind of people that you would assume would be great in the kingdom. You think about how many times the disciples wrestled over, you know, not physically confrontations, but argued about who was going to be great in the kingdom. And what's interesting is if Matthew has the Beatitudes in any kind of chronological place, then Jesus told them right from the beginning what it means to be a man in his kingdom. And it is the antithesis, and I realize that's a $10 word. It is the exact inflation. It used to be $5 words, <laughs> but it's the exact opposite of what you would assume would gain, or the man that you would assume would gain power in a kingdom. And there's actually what's been called a second set of Beatitudes in your New Testament. And and you and I have talked about these recently on a different program. In fact, I just got done editing the first episode last night. It's going to drop. We're recording this on Tuesday. This is going to play on Wednesday, but it's actually going to drop the day we record this episode. And that is the blessings at the end of the letters to the seven churches are very similar to the Beatitudes in those blessings. When you think about, you think about the church in Ephesus in chapter two of, of Revelation, it says, you know, that they needed to repent. They needed to do the deeds that they did at first. They, first, they need to remember from where you've fallen, repent and do the deeds you did at first, or else I'm coming to remove the lampstand out of its place unless you repent. And then he go, he tells them that they're doing good against standing against the Nicolaitans. And then he says this in verse 7, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will grant to eat of the tree of life in the paradise of God. When you get down to the church at Smyrna, the next church, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes will not be hurt by the second death. And you have the same pattern of if you turn to me, and it, that turning is always a surrendering. It's always turning to God's will. It's not a strength. You're not going to do this by, by muscling through a difficult situation. You're going to attain this blessing, this beatitude-like blessing by surrendering. That's such an important lesson. Men in our present culture, we're sort of trapped between two extremes. On the one side, we've got the extreme of upholding the tradition. This is the traditional man. This is the traditional male role. On the other side, you've got this demand that everything traditional be labeled toxic and be thrown out the window. And what we can see is that neither one of those is really the kind of man that God wants us to be. He doesn't want us to be a person that dominates by strength, but he also doesn't want us to be a person that looks at everything that God has said a man should be and throw that out because that's an old way of thinking. What he wants us to become are men who look at godliness as our first priority. And the first place that we apply godliness is inwardly. Is that a, is that a good reading of that thought or 
Yeah, I think that's great. And, and again, it just, it really is, as you said, and, and, and you look at the world 2000 years ago or 3000 years ago, and it's always been that the world has its image of manhood and fatherhood. And then there's a, a counter to that, that sometimes we almost think is the spiritual and it's not, but it's, you know, it, it is just a representation of the opposite. And then, then there is genuine successful fatherhood, you know, and, and mm-hmm. husband husbandry and, you know, just, just manhood itself. And it's, and it really is, it really is so very different because the very first thing it requires you to do is accept that you are not as much as you think you are, you know, that, that there is a weakness. And, and what's so fascinating to me is that fundamentally, you know, one of the biggest things that I think this is just a practical statement that I think a lot of mistake that so many fathers make is they don't admit when they're wrong. The Beatitudes are built on the idea that you have to acknowledge that you, you're poor in spirit or you're meek or you're, you're hungry for righteousness. You're, you know, all, all these characteristics that a lot of times the world says, well, that's not strength, you know, because none of these say, blessed are the strong, you know, blessed are the successful, you know, that's not what it's all about. So to me, it, it gives me this great sense that, you know, the, the beatitude concept is it's, it's about first and foremost, acknowledging what you aren't by saying I'm poor in spirit. I need more. I'm not, I'm not what I should be. And that is the core of successful fatherhood. Yeah. And it's also the, uh, one of the core, one of the defining aspects of really integrating a man and a woman together in marriage. It's the first lesson that you have to learn. And hopefully by the time we've become fathers, we've become a little more practiced in that because we've had to learn that, that, that success in any godly endeavor, whether, whether it's, it's talking about integrating people that have different ideas. In fact, that's our theme for this year in the fifth street congregation where I preach is love one another and, and looking at how do you bring people back together after, not just after COVID, but how do you take different, you know, people who have different ideas about life, who have different perspectives, how do you make them one cohesive body when there is so much surrounding them that calls for them to be strong and have differing opinions and to stand up for those opinions? How do you bring people together? And it really is about teaching them that the first thing you have to learn to seek is the kingdom. And if you're going to find the kingdom, you're going to have to surrender to this example of godly strength, which is not my strength, it's his strength. One great thing about this idea is that you go on in the Sermon on the Mount, you hear Jesus at the end of chapter six, talking about seeking first the kingdom of heaven and its righteousness, and all things are added to you. And the significance here again, is that it's talking about a mindset that says your absolute focus is on this concept of the nature of the kingdom, a kingdom that, you know, we say is manifested by the church today, of course, but also a kingdom that is eternal life. That is, you know, something mm-hmm. that we're striving to be inheritors of, you know, the successful husband never lets that depart his mind. The successful father sees that as the ultimate goal of any interaction, anything he does. That's what it's all about. I often tell young fathers, hey, your only goal is to get your kids 
uh, to be adopted by our heavenly father, you know, when that, when that time yeah. comes, that's all that matters in your parenting, nothing else. Not that they would go to a good college or get a good job or all these things that we sometimes measure success by. It said, all that matters is that you get them to desire the kingdom of God. And the only way that's going to happen is that you genuinely desire the kingdom of God. Well, and you think about where Jesus goes with this in the Sermon on the Mount, which is sort of the, the direction this first question was going to go. He immediately tells them, you know, after this, you know, let your light shine before men. You know, you're a city set on a hill, you're salt. And then he says, the thing that a kingdom citizen knows is that their light shines when they seek to glorify the Father in the things that they do. And, he's, and then he tells them, he says, this is different from what you've been told is righteous. And that's exactly what we're talking about. He says, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom. And if this is at the beginning of Jesus's ministry, as Matthew places it, of course, Matthew isn't necessarily written chronologically, but I do think this is probably pretty early on in Jesus's ministry. That what you see is that's not just a shot across the bow. He goes right into everything that's wrong with the religious observance of that day. He starts with the teaching and the, the you have heard it said statements, but I tell you, and he applies that to anger and he applies that to murder. Uh, he applies that to anger and then he applies that to things like divorce and vengeance and loving your neighbor and lusting after a woman. He says all of these things that you have heard that it's really about the outward things that you do. I'm telling you, it's really about the inward things that you harbor. And then you get down, he sort of takes a little, a little aside and talks about the hypocrisy of the Pharisees and challenges them. Are you going to seek the treasure of this earth? Or are you going to seek the kingdom of God? Then you get down to six and 33 and he says, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things will be added to you. And he's not talking about the treasure of this life. He's talking about the fundamental needs of life. You know, what you're going to eat, what you're going to wear, what you're going to, where you're going to live. And then he reassures them at the beginning of chapter seven that not everybody's going to receive these things. And you don't continue throwing what is holy before swine. You don't cast your pearls before swine. But you do trust that if you're seeking the kingdom, your heavenly father knows how to give good gifts. So keep walking that narrow way. And then he challenges them at the end of the sermon. And I'm, I know I'm paraphrasing huge sections of the sermon here, but he challenges them at the end of that sermon to be like this wise builder that builds his house on the rock. How do the Beatitudes help prepare us to hear the messages that follow after these statements of blessings? Well, like you said, he's trying to turn the world upside down, so to speak. He's trying to say, and what, one thing I'll plug here is, is while a moment ago, I said, you know, Jesus is starting off by saying it's about introspection as opposed to, you know, a, you know, filling in the blank kind of faith. He then goes right in to say, but you can't break command. You know, that's the, that's the characteristics of your relationship with God, that you're walking that line and you're not going to do that. And, and it's important to see it that way, that there's kind of a, you know, almost two extremes. If you look at those statements, the Beatitudes, and then the do not break commandment. Now you said it really well. I don't know if I really want to add anything to that. Just the idea that from that point on, he begins to say, you know, that what's been missing in understanding has been, you know, the, the intent of the command or the, 
implication of the command, you know, what, what the command was meant to accomplish when people were looking at it, just saying, I can check it off a list. They were missing the idea that there was a, a deeper point to it. And so oftentimes by pursuing this righteousness, that was merely outward or merely, you know, a, a, a physical keeping of something, they were missing the internal things, you know, the characteristics yeah. about in chapter six, he'll go into giving and he'll go into praying and, you know, fasting. And he'll, he'll talk about how these things have this spiritual idea that was, was mm -hmm. so missed. And the Beatitudes set us up for that. I think the Beatitudes set us up for an idea that, Hey, you know, the kingdom of heaven, it's not what you think. And that might be yeah. the, the title, the subtitle of the sermon. Well, and when you think about that, and you used a phrase that I, I really liked a moment ago, you, you said that Jesus is really sort of turning the world on its head, at least the Jewish world and its notion of this kingdom and this king that's going to sit on David's throne on its head. One of the best commentaries that's ever been written on the Sermon on the Mount, in my opinion, it was written by Paul Earnhardt. It was called An Invitation to a Spiritual Revolution. And I don't know if you've read that book or not, but it was, it was really opening the, the idea of what you just said. At the end of this sermon, the, the people that hear it are amazed because Jesus is teaching, not as the scribes and the Pharisees, he's teaching as someone who has authority. That word authority there is mastery over the scripture. He is connecting points of the law to things that God was telling them in the prophets, and he's making it work together in such a way that they understand that his focus and his attention was not winning points for a certain school of thought. It was really pulling people back in the direction of God, which was, I mean, you think about the, the you know, forget the division between Pharisees and Sadducees for a moment, because I mean, they hated each other. They tolerated each other because they needed each other to work, but they hated each other. But on the other side, what you didn't have even among, say, the Pharisees, there were different schools of thought on things. And guys were constantly trying to win somebody over to this school or that school, kind of like in the division at the beginning of 1 Corinthians. I'm of Apollos and I'm of Peter and I'm of Paul and I'm of Christ. What you see is that Jesus wasn't trying to win people to him and they understood that. He was trying to win them back to what the law was actually teaching them. You think about that. So much of our culture, and this has invaded our marriages, it's invaded our thinking as fathers, has been about trying to uphold some kind of cultural perspective of this is a man. And it's it's largely in our mind probably broken down because of the influence of the political spectrum to right and left. You know, the right looks at it one way, the left looks at it the another way. What we need to realize is God looks at it entirely differently. That if you're going to be a husband you're going to first be someone that God approves of. You're first going to be someone who pursues the kingdom. If you're going to be a father that God approves of, you're going to start by being a father that pursues the kingdom. If you're going to be an elder in his church and you're going to oversee one of the congregations that's part of his flock, you're going to have to first be someone who pursues the kingdom. The kingdom cannot be a secondary thought. And as we've already said, if you're going to pursue the kingdom, you're going to have to humble yourself in the inner man and stop focusing on what the world says is successful. One important idea too, is the idea that, um, one of the things that the world misses and even, even a lot of times we miss trying to, to pursue these things is we're not focusing on the end result as much as we're focusing on the path that's taking us there. That in other words, it's all about the idea that I am. 
I'm not, I'm not going to be the best husband by saying my wife is all of my focus. It's actually, I'm going right. to be the best husband by God being my entire focus by, well, by the kingdom of heaven being my entire focus. I'm yes. going to be the best kind of father by not saying my kids are my number one thing, but by saying God is my number one thing. The kingdom of heaven is my number one thing. And that, that again, that's not logical by a worldly standard because you're, you're not putting that first. Instead, I'm putting being a godly man first. And in that sense, I actually become the best father, husband, man that I could be. So Jesus is really trying to stir this up by saying that the people that pursued righteousness for the sake of righteousness, for the sake of that they're, they're not making it, you know? So, so the big question is, well, why not? Is it because nobody can do it? It's because they're missing the point of what makes a man a successful father, husband, he does it because he's put God first. Best husband, you know, I told my wife from the beginning, the best husband I can be is to love you less than I love God. And that yeah. then I'll love you better than you could have ever been loved. There were, there was an older couple when Lauren and I got married, I was preaching at a small congregation on the far east side of Houston called Greensboro. And I, I'm sure this couple has long since passed on because they were, they were fairly elderly when we were there. And that's been over, been well, they knew us when we were engaged, so that's been 20 years now. And their names were brother and sister Cooper. And I, and that's how they said it was Cooper. It wasn't Cooper, it was Cooper. And the Coopers gave us a card when we got married. And of course, yeah, they were very generous people, so it had it had a, a gift in it. But the I don't remember what the denomination was on the, the bills or the check that they put in there, but I do remember what was written in the card. And it was, Jared and Lauren, we love you so much. The secret to marriage is to love each other more than you love yourself and love God more than that. And I just thought that is brilliant. And it was so perfect for a young couple who, I mean, as, as a preacher going into marriage, you kind of think, yeah, I, I know what this is about. I've preached on this enough times. And here is this older couple who had been married at the time more than 50 years, and they were reaching across generational lines to give us this one really important lesson that others had given it to us. But I just remember there so vividly because of the urgency of writing that inside of a card that's, you know, basically saying we're happy for you. But tagging that inside that card had this urgency about it. And what you just said reminds me of really Jesus in the garden in Luke 22, where he says, if you're willing, remove this cup from me, yet not my will, this is verse 42, but yours be done. I think it's Matthew that records that as nevertheless, your will be done, you know, never less than your will. But this idea of seeking the kingdom in every aspect of our life, whether it's fatherhood or marriage or as an elder, or as, as, a, as a Christian in a pew who's tasked with shining the light of the gospel in our daily life, it really does start with seeking the will of God. And if we're not seeking the will of God, then we're not exceeding the righteousness of the Pharisees. And that's, that's something that I think we struggle with, that we don't we think about doing right things, but how often do we stop and ask ourselves, is this the will of God? 
And when you look at these Beatitudes, and I'm just going to read them really quickly here. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This is Matthew 5 and 3. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Now, I know there's some discussion about whether Verse 11 is actually a beatitude. I have a hard time with taking it out of the beatitudes because it starts with blessed are you, you know, blessed are. But if it's not one of, one of the beatitudes, it's at least an exposition of that last beatitude on persecution. But when you think about this, let me ask you an off-the-sheet question. What kind of person, or better yet, what Bible characters can you think of that embody these things to where somebody says, I need to pattern myself after somebody. We can think of, uh, this is an example of these characteristics. Now, I know that, that in Numbers 12, verse 3, Moses records that Moses was a very humble man more than any man on the face of the earth. That seems a tad self-serving, but then again, it's inspired. But I mean, obviously we can look at Moses and, and I think the Hebrew writer touches on Moses in Hebrews 11, when it talks about him uh, esteeming the, the uh, Christ better than all the riches of Egypt. But who are we looking at? Who would we point to? And what is the importance of finding examples of these to try to pass on these lessons? You know, the word of God gives us a, a great number of people that it wants us to look at and, and to see their failings and their successes oftentimes. That's that's what's mm -hmm. so incredible about the way the word of God records somebody's life is that it, it, it gives a perfect synopsis of, of their, of their identity. David comes to mind, a man who, you know, oftentimes could, uh, David's great success in life wasn't that he was this victorious warrior king. It was that every time he messed up, he threw himself before God and said, I'm so sorry. I messed up just me. Nobody, I don't blame anybody for it. I can't, I can't put it to somebody else, just me, David, David fits all of these characteristics in so many great ways. And, and again, that's so important to the concept of the Beatitudes is that I always contrast David with Saul and, mm -hmm. you know, from Brian's perspective, which is worth every cent you think it's worth. I say, Saul seems to have committed less serious sins than David in, you know, in my perspective, because David did, you know, with Bathsheba or and yet, of course, God doesn't forgive Saul. He forgives David. Why is that? Because, because of this ownership of sin, because David falling down and saying, you're right, I did it. Yeah. And I oftentimes make the point to say that this, this identity that Saul took on of being a victim, but Saul says, it's not my fault. It's Samuel's fault. Whenever he sins the first time, you know, or it's the people's mm -hmm. fault or Saul was all. And it was God's fault. Yeah. God's fault. Yeah. He actually blames God right. at one point. And Saul was great about finding somebody to blame for his problems. And, and one thing about the Beatitudes is the Beatitudes necessarily impose an idea that you cannot be a victim and be a part of the kingdom of heaven by saying you have to, you have to own up that you're poor in spirit. 
you know what? I wasn't, I, I'm not as good as I could be because I'm not as spiritual as I need to be. You know, you have to accept that, you know what? I need to know more. I'm hungry and thirsting for righteousness. You know, it's, it's Mm -hmm. this sense where, you know, one of the most important ideas about the kingdom of heaven you draw out of the new Testament is that you can't be a victim of circumstances and be a part of the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven, as Jesus will say, I've come to seek and save the lost. The kingdom of heaven requires an acceptance of our failing so that we can be successful. Here's, here's Paul talking about it. Second Corinthians 12, when he says, you know, you know, I'll rather boast in my weakness, knowing that in my weakness, you know, the grace of God can come. It's important. You know, when I look at David and I see David as merciful, you know, at times I see David as pure, you know, you know, a peacemaker is a tough one. Right. But even there, you know, (laughs) I, I think David had his moments. But the point is, is that David, David is a great embodiment. Now there's a lot of other guys that come to my mind too. At least knew enough to listen to Abigail, right? That's right. That's right. Yes. And he knew that he knew enough. He knew to, enough to say, you know what? I was about to do something really dumb, but you stopped me from doing it. That was, that's great about David is that David could say, you know what? You, you did better than I did in this moment. And um, yeah. again, that's. That's, that's a great dad. Now, David wasn't a great dad. That's what's so interesting about it. But, yeah. but the moment where he tells Abigail, hey, I was about to make a mistake and you stopped me. That was a great dad husband moment because mm. those are the moments where our, we're the most successful is when we own up to say, you know, Rod, I didn't do it quite as well as I should have. You know, when somebody could say that to their wife, to their children, I, I nearly didn't do it right. Your righteousness, what they're, what they're gifting in that moment is what genuine righteousness is. It has nothing to do with me. Yes. It's all about God. Yeah. It, the thing that I love best about the David Abigail story is, you know, she isn't his wife at the time. She's somebody else's wife that God strikes him down just a few days after that. But his name means idiot or foolish one because he chose to pick a fight with David. And that seems to be in his character because he was already named that. So, yeah. But when you, when you look at the idea of, sometimes peacemaking and you use that as an example is admitting that I'm not very good at this and surrendering to somebody else's idea because it's in line with what God wants us to do. That is so important in our culture today. Yeah. That, that might makes right is very much alive in every aspect of our life that that the counterculture that we live in where evil is good and good is evil will tell you that they're standing up for the weak but they're but they're not they're really flexing a might that they don't have and the idea that might and right are associated with one another is deeply ingrained in our culture even by people who would say i do not subscribe to that that i am weak and you're oppressing me and therefore, I'm going to punch you back in the mouth before you punch me, which is I'm going to retaliate before you actually do anything kind of thing. We cannot participate in those kinds of struggles. Right. That, that's, that's not humility. That's not meekness. That's not being gentle. That's not hungry and thirsting for righteousness. And, and David was the character I came up with. I think Moses is a great example of this, too, that, that Moses, there's a lot of times when, yeah, and Moses is probably a better peacemaker than David is. I mean, there's times when Moses to his own hurt at one point, even though he doesn't realize what's going to happen. 
intercedes on behalf of the people at a time when God's ready to destroy them. And he's actually seeking peace between God and a people that are resisting God with everything they are. But there's a reason why David is called in 1 Samuel 13 and 14, the man that God desires that's after his heart. I mean, God says that about him. He says, but now telling Saul, Samuel, say, thy kingdom shall not continue for the Lord has sought for himself a man after his own heart. That Saul talk, and Paul talks about this, I'm sorry, in Acts 13 and 22, about how God removed Saul and he made David their king. And he testified concerning him that I have found David, son of Jesse, a man after my own heart. That's really what we're pursuing in every aspect. To be a man after God's own heart, it's not just to say that we, that we do some godly things. It is really inviting God in, even though God doesn't need our invitation, but inviting God into the, every situation, whether it's husband, father, difficulties, struggles that we're having with brethren in the congregation, inviting him in the middle of, of those struggles and saying, what would you have me do? And I've messed up, but I don't want to continue messing up because this is not the path I need to be on. Help me through this struggle. If we're not careful. We lose sight of that very easily in our culture. So going back to the on-sheet questions now, that when we look at these qualifications, the poor uh, in spirit, the, those who are mourning, the gentle, which is probably the idea of meekness, bringing strength under control, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, he's blessing the merciful, the pure in heart, the peacemakers, and the persecuted. That's a pretty diverse list of attributes. Two questions about this. Number one, what do these things mean? If I'm talking about somebody who's poor in spirit or those who are mourning or those who are, are meek that are hungry and thirsting for righteousness, who am I talking about here? How do we embrace these characteristics in our daily life? And how do they change our relationship to God? You know, a couple of ways we draw the, we look at this list is we could try to draw them together and say, that they have a commonality of being more a, a, a sense of they're all saying the same thing. If we look at them like that, then we take these and we say, these are all characteristics of people who by any standard would be unsuccessful. Now, now we could also just take each one as an individual statement, which, which I also think is a great way to look at it and just pour into it, especially since in Luke, you know, when Luke lists out these things, there's, there's quite a few differences or additions, mm -hmm. you might say to the, to that list. But yep. one thing, one thing I like to suggest first and foremost is that these things, and again, this is that world upside down kind of moment. These are all things that would be unsuccessful from a worldly standpoint. Hey, are you a spiritual yep. person? Well, I'm actually poor in spirit. Well, then how, you know, how could you be successful? Hey, are you somebody who things are going great? No, I'm, you know, I'm mourning. Life is so bad. You know, hey, are you a real well-known Big person, big personality. No, I'm, I'm actually timid. You know, I'm meek. Hey, are you full of righteousness? No, I'm starving for it. These are all things, like I said, again, that, that are a person. And, and like I said, let's, let's say that Jesus is introducing the kingdom. As you said, Jesus is introducing the kingdom for the first time. And all, you know, here come the scribes and Pharisees and they're saying, okay, kingdom is for us because we've done our very best to, to be mindful of the law and these things like this. And when he opens up the door and says, okay, here's who gets in. People that, uh, you know, are not above this standard, but below it. Yeah. That would have been a shocking state. And of course, what's the big idea? Jesus will say, I, you know, I've only come to, you know, I've only come to, you know, physician doesn't come for the healthy, he comes for the sick. And right. nobody's healthy 
But if somebody thinks they are, here's the standard Jesus is saying, and it's not everybody above the standard, it's everybody below the standard. Well, yeah, everybody's actually below the standard, but mm -hmm. only people that know they're below the standard can get in. And that really is one of the things that I grab here. First of all, how do these characteristics prepare us for this? Well, it, it fundamentally requires me to acknowledge I am a broke. You can't get to heaven if you say, boy, I'm good enough for the kingdom of heaven. Boy, I'm, you know, I'm the kind of guy God yeah. wants. You can only get to the kingdom of heaven if you can stand up and say, I am absolutely nothing he would want. Yeah. And when you think about something like being poor in spirit, I mean, the, the obvious translation there is humble. But there's, there's a richness to the language that it's not just what I think is humility. It is, it is actually divesting myself of anything that, that is prideful at all. That that's what it means to be poor in spirit. That you know, I, I would contend that while Jesus is probably the perfect example of these beatitudes, I think the idea of mourning there is probably mourning over our sin. Now, Jesus mourned over our sin, and we know he is sinless and didn't sin, but he mourned over our sin when he stood at you know, the edge of Jerusalem, overlooking Jerusalem, and, and lamented that it would not come to him as he wanted to gather the people to him, that they just wouldn't come. But that there is a recognition of a separation that we bring on ourselves. And then you have this idea of gentleness or meekness, which is not allowing pride to come back in and trying to enforce our way. And then you have this followed by this idea of hungering and thirsting for righteousness, which again, sounds like seeking the wisdom from above in James three and not that which is from below and how, in fact, let's go to that passage for just a second. But when you look at how he describes this wisdom that we're supposed to desire in James three, it makes this idea of hungering and thirsting for righteousness just sort of leap off the page. But when you look at that, in verse 13 of James 3, it says, Who among you is wise and understanding? Let him show by his good behavior, his deeds done in the gentleness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy, selfish ambition in your heart, do not be arrogant and so lie against the truth. He says, look, you can be doing all these gentle things, but if the root of these things is ambition, then you are lying about the truth of God, that you're not the person you say you are and you're a poor reflection of what God wants you to be. The wis <clears throat> this wisdom is not that which comes down from above, but it's earthly, natural, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder and every evil thing. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, reasonable, full of mercy and good fruits. It sounds like the Beatitudes, unwavering without hypocrisy. And the seed whose fruit is righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. It's not the things that we do, at least it's not only the things that we do. It has to be the spirit in which we do them. Now, if we're doing them in the right spirit, then the righteousness is going to follow the spirit that's seeking God. I can't say, you know, it doesn't matter what I do because I'm pure in heart. I've, that's the denominational angle on this. It does matter what you do, but the root of what you do has to be this gentle, self-controlled, divested of pride, mourning over sin, seeking righteousness person. And when we become that, then I think it makes the second half of that list come alive. That, that when, we, when we become someone who is poor in spirit and mourning, even if it's over our sin, if that's the mourning that's there, if it's the gentleness being the meekness and bringing myself under control, 
and that makes me a person that hungers and thirsts for righteousness, then out of that is going to become this merciful, pure, peacemaking person who in the middle of persecution can continue to glorify God. And when you take that and you apply that to our roles as husbands and fathers, then what we see is that if we aren't shaped by those first four, then we're not going to have the mercy, the purity of heart, the ability to make peace, the ability to to suffer through difficult times as husbands and fathers. We're not going to have those attributes if we aren't first humbling ourselves before God, confessing our sins to him, learning to bring our strength under control by seeking righteousness. And, And to me, you just can't take some of them. You have to take a holistic approach to it. Yeah, that's a great point. Again, to to draw all these things to that. I was kind of thinking of how Jesus is going to go on in the Sermon on the Mount, chapter six, where he talks about, you know, your your righteousness, you know, you can't be done for the sake of man and things like that. The idea that these right. are, you know, he even goes on to describe the idea of, of trying to avoid having your work seen by men. It's not a command to say, you know, can't pray in front of people, can't do works in front of people. But what he is saying is that your absolute motivation should have nothing to do with the perception of righteousness the world gives for it. So that's just such a a profoundly important idea that you're not supposed to have this characteristic like that. Yeah. And it does fundamentally change our relationship with God. That I go from being someone who is seeking to please God by my own standard to as a husband, I'm seeking to please God as a husband. As a father, I'm seeking to please God as a father. As a member of a local church, I'm seeking to please God as part of that body. If I'm an elder in a local church, then I'm seeking to please God as an elder. And it it redefines what these relationships mean, that father is not just siring a child, that husband is not just, not just being in a committed relationship with a woman. It is understanding that fundamentally God is the, and we've said this before, God is the most important part of these relationships, that God is the most important part of my relationship with Will. God is the most important part of my relationship with Lauren. God is the most important part of the friendship that you and I have. God is the most important part of the relationship that I have with my brethren. And when I do that, then what happens is I become those latter things, that I become this gentle, peacemaking truth-seeking, I'm just trying to wrap these all together, merciful person who is driven by wanting to honor God in all of those relationships. In this world where we're sort of feeling out new norms and what it means to be connected with people and what connection looks like and, and how important that is, nothing is more important in any of those relationships than God. And that redefines our relationship with God. You know, what's really neat about this. So let's, let's kind of apply it to the conversation we're at, at in this scenario is that, you know, we all took a hit in the last uh, couple of years, you know, all congregations all across the land. We think it diminished us, but the Beatitudes are suggesting it actually made us more able to inherit the kingdom of heaven. Now that's a tough thing to accept because, you know, in my congregation, we saw a lot of changes that, you know, the worldly Brian would say they were for the worst, you know, people moving, circumstances like that. You know, it's, it's easy to look at it that way. And yet the Beatitudes would suggest, Hey, do you have a crippling last couple of years? Then you're ready to receive the kingdom of heaven. Then, then that's what it's about because it's not about 
the fact that, <clears throat> hey, we were the strongest congregation. We are the strongest congregation around. You know, that, mm-hmm. that mindset that creeps into everybody's mind sometimes, you know, that, that keeps us away from the kingdom of heaven. Yeah. And that's such an important perspective because while the world may be getting beyond COVID, the, probably the fallout from COVID for churches is, is just beginning. I mean, we're feeling it at Fifth Street. We've lost a couple of families recently to either the ability to move or the need to move. And a lot of that was brought on by the mobility that COVID no longer tethered us to one place because everybody started working from home. And, you know, there's a lot of people we, we live, you and I live in a difficult area to work in the kingdom. I mean, there's, there's not a lot of, I'm kind of jealous because you always have Bible studies going and I'm having a hard time finding them necessarily up here. But the, the realization is this is kingdom work. Kingdom work is always, is always going to feel insignificant because it's not about me. It doesn't bring glory to me that if the best I can do in any situation to bring somebody to the kingdom is let my light shine in a way that God is glorified, then that's kingdom work. And I need to reevaluate how I define success as a preacher, as a father, as a husband, because it's not about preaching for the most powerful or the strongest congregation in the area. And it's not about the number of meetings that I hold in a year. And it's not about the number of, of families that are coming in versus going out of the congregation to move to other places. It's about, am I helping my brethren here out of a spirit of meekness and gentleness, recognizing that they are broken, sinful people, just like I am a broken, sinful person. And that all of us are only getting where we're going by the grace of God. And I need to see my wife as a broken, sinful person that God is patient with, just like I'm a broken, sinful person that God is patient with. When my son becomes accountable, he will be a broken, sinful person that God is patient with, just like I'm a broken, sinful person that God is patient with. And without that perspective, there is no connection to the kingdom. You don't get here by being more righteous than everyone else. You get here by your righteousness being about seeking God. Well, my friends, unfortunately, this is when I have to break in and tell you, you have to come back Saturday for part two of this discussion with Brian Haynes on the Beatitudes and what it means to imitate Jesus. And I've got to tell you, we are just getting started. In the next segment, we're going to be talking about how the Beatitudes impact the most important relationships that we have in our lives. Not just how they shape us as fathers and husbands, but how they can change the dynamic of our homes and our congregations. You really need this, and it is going to be an episode that you do not want to miss. Just a reminder, our broadcast days have changed to Wednesdays and Saturdays so that we're not competing with the other program, Biblically Speaking, which I hope that you're following because we're doing a lot of videos right now on making Revelation simple. We also have some more evidences videos in the pipeline that will be coming up in just a few weeks, and I can't wait to share it all with you. But as always, from all of us here at Man Up, to you, have a good day. God bless and man up.
Dismissed!